0: Everybody, and welcome to the ninth annual um, Katz Memorial Lecture. My name is Laurel McDonald, and I'm the interim director of the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library. Um, We're very grateful to the Katzes, to Joanna Katz um, and Leon Katz, um, for being such wonderful supporters of this lecture series, and I'm also very pleased, in particular, to have Jereen and Michael McEwen, who are um, good friends, or were good friends of Suhana Katz with us this evening to help us remember the Katz's. So thank you very much for joining us tonight. (laughs) So as you may know, the Katz lecture series has been a remarkable series that's brought many fascinating speakers here to to Toronto. To speak on the history of um, book history, Canadian book history, as well as Canadian book arts. Um, and this evening, in keeping with this tradition, we have with us tonight, Linda Leggett. I also wanted to highlight uh, the fact that our former director, Anne Donnerman has recently been honoured with two very prestigious awards. Yes, I see somebody pointing at Anne. <laughs> In January, the Ontario College and University Libraries Association awarded Anne with a Lifetime Achievement Award, and this is given to individuals for significant contributions in academic librarianship. And this June, the Bibliographical Society of Canada will honour Anne with its Marie Tremaine Medal, and this medal is for Bibliographical Contributions. Um, I think these are wonderful, and it's lovely to see um, both of these awards recognizing Anne's tremendous contributions to the library community, both within Ontario and at the national level. So well deserved, Anne. Thank <laughs> you. Finally, um, I wanted to introduce our guest speaker, Linda LeJet. And I know that Linda has a lot of fans out there tonight, um, but I'll try my best to introduce Linda to you. So, Linda is a botanical artist. Um, she paints and draws um, plants native to southern Alberta. Uh, born and raised in Calgary, uh, she's done research and writing on the history of botanical arts. Um, Linda's, Linda's participated in many um, exhibitions, both juried and solo exhibitions, and most recently in 2015, two of her paintings won a prize from the Botanical Artists of Canada. So this evening, um, I'm very pleased and very honoured that we have Linda with us here tonight, and she'll speak about Where Art Meets Science, um, the traditions of botanical art. So welcome, Linda. Would you like the podium? Would you like the stand? Yeah, okay, great.
1: Okay, we won't record it. So shall we, should we do this together? Sure. Gaining a little... (laughs) Gaining a little height in this world. Um, Can you all hear me okay? Good evening. I'm delighted to be here, and I wish to extend a warm thank you to the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library and the Johanna and Leon Katz Memorial Lecture Series Endowment for inviting me and for giving me the opportunity to present some of my research in botanical art traditions in Canada. This is a very inspiring space to stand in. As I look up and around, I see leather-bound volumes and beautiful books, and rare and beautiful books, like sentinel standing, keepers and guardians of knowledge. And this is a very amazing place to stand. <laughs> you might all wanna come and stand here and look at that. We as writers spend much of our time alone, yet none of our work happens in isolation. There are the amazing archivists, there are <coughs> excuse me, the learned librarians, and the inquisitive acquaintances, all of whom ask probing questions and deposit tidbits of insight. Their help is always very much appreciated, as is the steadfast support of my husband, Larry Patterson. I would like to acknowledge the scholarship of Dr. Michael Peterman, who unfortunately wasn't able to be with us tonight, a noted authority on Susanna Moody and Catherine Parr Trail. His book, Sisters in Two Worlds, has been especially valuable during my research. As a botanical artist, my quest to learn of the traditions of botanical art in Canada began here at the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library. Although my research is still in its formative stages, tonight I hope to provide some answers to the questions of our Canadian botanical art traditions. One of Canada's early amateur botanists was Catherine Parr Strickland-Trail, who emigrated from England in 1832 with her husband of just two days. Her sister, Susanna Strickland, only one year younger than Catherine, had married John Moody a year earlier, and the Moody's also travelled to Canada in 1832. The Strickland sisters were two of a family of eight raised near Southwold in Suffolk. They and other family members were educated at home by their parents. Their father tutored them in mathematics, history and science, while their mother taught them to read and write. Catherine showed a keen interest in nature, a passion which she shared with her father. The parents fostered in their children a love of flowers and birds and of the studies of animals and insects. Before coming to Canada, Catherine and Susanna spent time in the literary circles of London and were exposed to the images and ideas of the day. The influences of their life in England stayed with them, and while trying to eke out an existence in the backwoods of Canada, Catherine collected botanical specimens, and Susanna (coughs) continued writing. Agnes was Susanna's second child, but the first born in Canada and when young, she spent much time in the company of her Aunt Catherine. It was many years later when Agnes, then a Fitzgibbon, was widowed with eight children to raise, that the notion of compiling a book about Canadian wildflowers came into being. Catherine wrote the description of the 30 plants, and Agnes drew, etched, and painted the images... the 10 plates. To this task, Agnes enlisted the help of family members, and especially her daughter, Geraldine, who was only 12 years old. Perhaps through the inspiration of being at her mother's side completing this work, laid the foundation for Geraldine's own creative endeavors, especially as a photographer. Many of the plates included more than one plant, as seen here in the image on the left with harebell, showy lady slipper, and wild orange red lily, while the image on the right is the fireweed. 500 copies of this book with hand-painted plates were printed. It had been sold on a pre-subscription basis for the sum of $5 each. Agnes Fitzgibbon was one of our first published botanical artists in Canada, and through her work, she defined an early style of depicting Canadian flora. You have been able to view view the original artwork for some of these plates here in the reading room, as well as an 1869 copy of Canadian wildflowers, and we thank the Thomas Fisher Library staff for displaying them. It is a pure delight for us to see these works firsthand. What were the origins of the botanical art which Agnes was creating? Where did this art form originate and why was it developed? Early examples come to us from Knossos on the island of Crete. The palm trees on the right from about 1800 BC and the Madonna lily on the left from around 1550 BC. We can see the suggestion of fruit in the palm tree in the palm trees and are aware of the stages of growth of the lily, the bud, the full flower, and the flower going to seed. Although these were meant to be simply pottery decoration, they transmit meaningful data regarding the plant world. It has been stated that curiosity regarding the medicinal properties of plants was the humble origin of scientific botany. In the first century AD, Pedanius Dioscorides compiled De Materia Medica, the body of collected knowledge regarding the therapeutic properties of any substance used for healing. The information it presented had much influence, and as late as the 1600s, the text he had written had been continually copied and quoted, ensuring its survival along with many of the Greek names used in modern botany. The artist of this 512 AD version, which is referred to as the Codex Vindobinensis, is not known, but there are almost 400 full-page paintings of plants in a naturalistic style. On the left, we see the scarlet pimpernel, a humble wayside flower, in one of its early visual forms, looking very much like a live growing plant. Its many uses are summed up in the often often repeated expression, no heart can think, no tongue can tell, the virtues of the Pimpernel. While I was conducting research at the Austrian National Library in Vienna, I had the privilege to view a facsimile of this book from about 1965. It is roughly 30 by 38 centimetres and 13 centimetres thick, or For the imperial sizes, that's 12 by 15 by 5 inches thick. Interestingly, the pages are of an irregular shape as the original text and drawings were applied to pieces of calfskin which were not formed into a perfect rectangle. The repeated copying of the plant images from this codex resulted in a deterioration of their quality and eventually their usefulness. As these drawings functioned mainly functioned as a means to identify plants to medicate humans, the need for accuracy was paramount. With the development of printing in the 1440s and the cutting of wood blocks for the creation of images, plant illustrations improved greatly. The development of the herbals reflects the continuation and refinement of the process of showing plants that were known to have medicinal properties. How to identify them thank you thank you very much
0: <laughs>
1: I guess I need to keep an eye up there too <laughs> if I only had one more eye we'd be in good shape okay now I can't find where I was <laughs> the repeated copying of the plant images from this codex resulted in a deterioration of their quality and eventually their usefulness As whoops or, went way too far back. The development of the herbals reflects the continuation and refinement of the process of showing plants that were known to have medicinal properties, how to identify them, extract their useful ingredients, and then apply them to, to cure certain disorders, wounds, and diseases. These books assisted the medical practitioners in easily identifying particular plants and parts of plants and ensured that this knowledge would be standardized and be more widely available. Early examples using woodcut images are the Latin Herbarius of 1484, seen on the left, and the German Herbarius of 1485, showing the two images on the right. Likely captured from living specimens, the illustrations show an honest attempt to represent the structure and habit of the plants portrayed. It is interesting to note. That from a botanical perspective, the Fuller's teasel, Dipsicus felonum, in the German herbal reflects the genus and species name more accurately, as one can clearly see the two opposite leaves which hold rainwater, Dipsicus, as well as the stiff, hooked points on the fruiting heads, felonum. An interesting aside William T. Stern, the British botanist, made the comment that teasel was cultivated primarily for the fruiting heads, and was used in the woolen industry to raise the nap on cloth. So far, no man-made device has been found as effective. Around this same time, the mid-to-late 1400s, there were major progressions in the field of art. Martin Schongauer, from the Alsatian town of Colmar, was an artist and engraver, and a notable influence on the work of Albrecht Dürer. In the painting of the peony, he shows fine observation of the bud, the stems, the sepals, and leaves. He has taken pains to show the change in the sepal from the bud to the backside of the flower form. And I'll point that out that if you can see that, that the sepals actually hug the bud in the bud form but there's a a very unusual thing that happens when the full flower occurs. Those sepals become more like little bumps on the back of the flower rather than a flat leaf, which the the sepal often remains in other flowers. So he had observed this and was able to capture that in his painting. This is a fine contribution to the presentation of plants in three-dimensional space. Leonardo da Vinci was also drawing plants in a convincing replication of reality. In these images, we are very aware of the characteristic growth of the plants, the energy in the stems, the shapes of the flowers, and the sense of movement in their leaves. Albert Dürer's famous painting Das Rasenstück of 1503 has often been referred to as the first ecological painting. Through this work, we are focused on the natural world and the interrelationship among the plants which inhabit it. It illustrates the the necessity of water for plant nourishment and the development of seeds for the perpetuation of the species. There is a strong sense of dynamic life in this painting and an accurate three-dimensional depiction of nature. The refinement in drawing skills, along with an understanding of the need for precise plant images, fostered the production of useful botanical books. Otto Brunfeld's former monk, priest, and now physician, physician authored Herbarum vivi iconis, or Images of Living Plants, which was published in Strasbourg between 1530 and 1536 A.D. I looked at a copy of this book dated 1532 in the Austrian National Library and especially noted the image of borage, which I currently grow in my own garden. Johann Schott, the publisher of the herbal, commissioned Hans Weiditz to paint Living Plants in Watercolors. These paintings were used as the images from which the woodblocks would be cut, as well as a guide for colored copies of Brunfeld's text. For the publisher to name the volume Images of Living Plants demonstrates to me that the illustrations were highly important for both their depiction of the plants as well as for their artistic beauty. Seen here are two of Wydat's watercolor paintings, common comfrey and cotton or scotch thistle. These naturalistic illustrations, completed in 1529, accurately convey notable botanical details and would have greatly aided the apothecary in choosing the correct plant for the needed medicine. The herbalist required precise detail and the botanical artist answered the request. Illustrated herbals were a vital method of preserving the accumulated knowledge and wisdom of the medical practitioners, as well as recording the medicinal properties of plants. And the botanical artist played a fundamental role in the proper representation of those plants. The work of Otto Brunfels is significant in the development of the field of botany and the representation of plants in this particular herbal by Hans Weiditz. Is a key component in the creation of and the ongoing growth of botanical art. So that's where the beginning of art and science, I guess, <laughs> an early beginning. Another early herbal of note, De Historia Stirpium, was compiled by Leonhard Fuchs in 1542. Along with Brunfelds and Bach, Fuchs was considered one of the Three Fathers of botany. The plant images in the herbal, some 497, were based on first-hand observation and drawn from nature by Albrecht Meyer. Heinrich Fulmauer transferred the drawings to the woodblocks and Rudolf Speckl did the cutting. In his preface, Fuchs stated... As far as concerns the pictures themselves, each of which is positively delineated according to the features and likenesses of the living plants, we have taken particular care that they should be most perfect. And moreover, we have devoted the greatest diligence to secure that every plant should be depicted with its own roots, stalks, leaves, flowers, seeds, and fruit he goes on to say that the drawings are to be without shadows and that the craftsmen are not to indulge their whims as to cause the drawing not to correspond accurately to the truth. His aim was to reproduce each plant from life and he stated that this was done for no other reason than that a picture expresses things more surely and fixes them more deeply in the mind than the bare words of the text. In these two images, he it is obvious that even though strict rigors were demanded, an artistic intent remains evident, as can be seen in the gentle curve of the stem and leaves, in the positioning of the fruit and seed, in the dissection of the spathe, and in the depiction of the growth habit of the plants. It is well known that the illustrations from Fuchs Herbal were copied and used for many other publications and it is estimated that as late as 1774, some 220 years after the first printing, the actual woodblocks were still being used. Imagine (coughs) any technology we have today lasting for 220 years. The 16th and 17th centuries saw the development of botanical gardens most often with a major focus on the growing of medicinal herbs. The medicinal garden in Padua, Italy, created in 1545 by Benedictine monks, is credited with being the world's first botanical garden. Today, it still preserves its original layout, which was a circular, central plot symbolizing the world, surrounded by a ring of water representing the ocean. The Hortus Botanicus in Leiden, in the Netherlands, was founded in 1590. And in 1594, Carolus Clusius was invited to become become its director and help establish the garden. We visited the Hortus just at the time when they were beginning a reconstruction of the gardens which Clusius had designed. In the existing gardens, we were delighted to see one of the tulip cultivars. That had originally been brought to the Netherlands from Turkey. And this particular lovely little tulip was about, um, well in my, my lexicon, eight or nine inches tall and a, with a very small, simple uh, blossom. It's an, amazing to see that, and then to go into the Kokenhoff Gardens nearby, where they're doing lots of culti- uh, lots of cultivars, re- doing lots of cross fertilization and crossbreeding, and they're creating tulips now that oh, some of them stand three feet tall with um, blossom heads that are six or eight inches in diameter, and when you think that this was the original concept of the tulip, where they have Come to today is uh, an interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting place. <laughs> so this is at the Kuchenhof. Uh, we saw some of the other tulips, which have been growing on regenerative bulbs since 1830, 1914, and one since 1700. And these are very small, very... and all simple, all, all the, just the simple forms. In 1673, the Chelsea Physic Garden was established as the Apothecary's Garden in London, England, for the apprentices to study the physic or medicinal qualities of plants to heal diseases. Some 40 years earlier... The Jardin de Roi in Paris was also founded and a medicinal herb garden was planted. This garden became the repository for, the, for plants and seeds brought or sent from the many destinations where the French had missionaries, explorers, or well the, where they held territory abroad. One such place, of course, was Canada. Jacques philippe Cornu was a physician and botanist who compiled... Canadensium plantarum, which, when published in 1635, described and illustrated for the first time over 30 species from eastern North America. It was the first Canadian flora. The artwork for this book has been attributed to Pierre Vallée, a French botanical artist, engraver, and embroidery designer, which is an interesting combination. But the embroidery designs were often very botanical in their aspects. Under the tutelage of Marie de Medici, the second wife of Henry IV, Valet became the French, course, French court's first botanical painter. And in 1608, Le Jardin du Très Christian Henri IV, the Garden of the Very Christian Henry IV, was published, in which Valet depicted plants from from the garden of the Louvre Palace. In 1635, he then illustrated Cornu's Canadensium plantarum, which was completed with neither Cornu nor Valet ever coming to Canada. Its value was recognized over a century later as Linnaeus consulted Canadentium plantarum to better understand the plants of eastern North America. Carl Linnaeus, as we know, was born in Sweden in 1707. He is famous for helping to systemize the classification of plants. In 1737, he published Systema Naturae, which grouped plants according to their reproductive characteristics. This system ushered in fresh possibilities for depicting plants, and botanical illustrators were fascinated by the challenge. The binomial classification put new requirements on botanical illustrators and demanded a more clinical portrayal of the natural world. From May to September of 1732, Linnaeus travelled to Lapland. Here is a page from his notebook showing his original drawings in his own hand. The Royal Society of Sciences at Uppsala (laughs) sponsored his research and Flora Laponica was subsequently published in 1737, the same year as Systema Naturae. The portrait of Linnaeus is by M. Hoffman, and it shows him holding Linnea borealis, Linnaeus from northern areas. The twin flower with a delicate pink, bell shaped form is a much beloved plant in Sweden and is a fitting tribute to Linnaeus. And you can see him holding that lovely little delicate flower. You might have noticed on the chart of Linnaeus' sexual system of plants that it was painted by Georges Dionysius Eret. I won't ask how many actually noticed that, but <laughs> I'm sure that several of you did. Born in Heidelberg, Germany, Eret played a significant role in establishing the norms for botanical painting in the 1700s. Around 1734, he spent time in France, and met the royal botanical painter at the Jardin de Roi, the renowned Claude Aubrier. Eret also travelled to Holland, which is where he met Linnaeus. They worked together at de Hartcamp, George Clifford III's estate south of Harlem, which was rich in botanical curiosities from around the world. Clifford, the third generation of a banking family originally from England, had a great passion for plants. As a director of the Dutch East India Company, he was able to have specimens brought to his garden from around the world. The collaboration of these men denotes an important change. Among Eret, Linnaeus, and Clifford, there was a close professional contact and a synergy of passion about the plant world. The focus of the study and depiction of plants is shifting from their medicinal properties to a more clinical examination of all plants and all parts of the plant. Eret's work was also an important component of the solidification of the world of botany into a significant art form. By 1736, he had moved to England, and an influential school of botanical art flourished under him. It is difficult to believe that these two works are some 280 years old, as they have a very contemporary look to them. The night-blooming cirrus on the right is a beautiful botanical image and one of my favourites. The mid to late 18th century witnessed the growth and development of another notable botanical artist, Pierre-Joseph redoutet and in his work we see a continuation of a change in the art form. A movement, I believe, toward plant portraits. Redute was born in what is now Belgium in 1759. He left home at age 13 to earn his living as a painter, and by age 23, he had moved to Paris, where his older brother Antoine, <clears throat> where his older brother Antoine lived. He studied under Gerard van Spaendonck, and following in the tradition of Pierre Vallée some 160 years earlier, Redouté became an official court artist to the queen of the day, Marie Antoinette. His paintings express a quiet beauty. They are gentle, elegant, subtle in colouring, and many were created while the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror were raging about him. During the revolution, 1789 to 1799, over 16,000 individuals were executed by guillotine. Most notably, Redouté's patroness, Marie Antoinette, her husband, King Louis XVI, and the pioneering chemist, Antoine Lavoisier. Redouté collaborated with the great botanists of the day, particularly Charles-Louis Leretier, who taught him to dissect flowers and portray their details with precision. Redoute is most especially known for his paintings of roses then, as well as today. In fact, if you see a rose depicted on a box of Kleenex tissues <laughs> on the cover of an address book, quite likely it will be from a painting by Redute. He is one of botanicals, botanical art's finest practitioners and set the standard to which many of us aspire today. Some 15 years ago, His original works were selling for upwards of $250,000, something else to which we also aspire. (laughs) At this time, advancements were being made in printing techniques, which helped foster the growth and development of magazines and serial publications, exhibiting engraved, hand-coloured plates. As Anne Dondertman has expressed, the first and most influential of the periodicals was the Botanical Magazine, now known as Curtis's Botanical Magazine. It was founded in 1787 by William Curtis of London, and it provided a means for less affluent households to possess beautiful pictures of plants in cultivation. This was in contrast to much of the earlier work in botanical art, which often was created for a more privileged class. The magazine has continued to this day with only a few interruptions in publication, and countless artists, several of whom were women, have made a significant contribution to this journal. By the early 1800s, other publications were flourishing. Benjamin Mound, a pharmacist, botanist, and fellow of the Linnaean Society, Published the Botanic Garden in 1825. This was a 13-volume periodical. It presented ornamental flowering plants cultivated in the Royal Gardens at Kew, with the purpose of educating British gardeners on horticultural matters. He employed many women artists, and mo- many women artists, most notably Augusta Withers, Priscilla Bury as well as Mound's own two daughters, Sarah and Eliza. A competing periodical, also of the 1820s, was the Gardener's Magazine, produced by the Scottish botanist and garden designer John Loudon. In some of the illustrations for this periodical, we see a strong correlation with the design of the plates in Canadian wildflowers. For example, what is represented is not a plant portrait per se, but a group of various flowers. They are named across the bottom and show a numbering sequence identical to that used by Agnes and Catherine. It is very possible that as a young woman in England, Catherine would have seen these publications and would have and would, of course, carry that knowledge with her to Canada. The publication of Canadian Wildflowers by Catherine and Agnes is an important historical work of the mid-1860s. It is worth noting that when it came to the creation of this book, neither Catherine nor Agnes were professionally trained in their respective endeavors. What they did have in abundance, however, was a quintessential pioneering spirit. They were passionate about what they were doing, They figured out what was necessary to be done and they did the work. Catherine in her description of the plants and Agnes in her engraving and hand (coughs) painting of the plates. The desire that plant knowledge should be offered to the public was Catherine's goal. And as we have noted through the ages, there is always a need for visual references to the botanical writings. As Fuchs stated so profoundly, a picture expresses things more surely and fixes them more deeply in the mind than the bare words of the text. Obviously, I think that's a good quote. We owe a debt of gratitude to Catherine and Agnes for for providing a foundation from which we can study both the botany and the botanical art of the native plants of Canada. Today, the study of both Indigenous and non-Indigenous plants is the focus of the annual exhibition of paintings by members of the Botanical Artists of Canada, a group to which I belong. About a year ago, I launched an initiative with the Canadian Botanical Association, the CBA, to begin a discussion about the intersection of art and science. It has progressed well, and this coming July, the Botanical Artists of Canada will hold their national juried exhibition in conjunction with the CBA's annual conference at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, July 4th to 8th. A roundtable discussion is planned where we will examine a native plant from three perspectives. The botanical art perspective, the scientific perspective, and with the assistance of members from the Six Nations we will also discuss the cultural and medicinal aspects of the chosen plant. This is a groundbreaking initiative and it is my hope that the art, science, and cultural links will continue to be strengthened. In this discussion of botanical art tonight, we have learned of the important work of listing and illustrating plants which possess medicinal properties. We have witnessed the blossoming of the simple beauty of a plant portrait from such skillful hands as Eret, Redoute and others. And we have seen the dissemination of images to a much wider audience by means of periodicals and books. Botanical art is an aesthetic means of documenting the natural world. It challenges the hand and the mind in equal measure. It does serve science as it makes visible intricate details otherwise unseen and it fosters curiosity about the natural world. But it remains true to art through the gentle curve of a leaf, the poetical pose of a flower, the delicate texture of a petal and by giving us amazing and breathtaking images of the world of botany. Thank you for allowing me to share my passion of botanical art with you. Would you like to questions? Sure, I'd be happy to. If you ask anything that I don't have an answer to, I'll say I don't have an answer. <laughs> uh, Oh, Jim. (laughs) Oh, goody, Jim, what would you like to know?
0: Yes? It seems all of these plants, although they're, they're well illustrated, they're taken out of the context of their environment. So, is there is there a, a Canadian movement or a movement that starts showing plants and their environments? Because that's just as important
1: as all of the other things you have explained? And then, lastly, Georgia O'Keefe is about to open up the ATO. Is she a, a mechanical artist? Oh, I like that question best of all. <laughs> I have an answer for that one. Um, uh, no, I don't know if there is a movement. There's certainly not um, a concentrated movement. Did everybody hear the question? Okay. Um, there's not, as as far as I understand, I don't think there's any concentrated movement. And as I mentioned, um, Redoute certainly in the 1700s, uh, his work did become a bit of a gold standard, and uh, we're still we're we're continuing to paint in in that fashion. Quite unlike what Agnes did, where there was groups of, of plants together, we still tend to be more of the plant portrait, individual image. And because um, this, of the scientific aspect of it, we were trying to take the plant apart, show all of the features of it so that it can be identified and recorded. So what we're trying to do is not so much of a general setting of where the plant comes from, but a description of that particular plant. But your point is extremely well taken because, in in knowing the environment from which the plant comes, then and certainly for native plants, that's a, an extremely important, you know, thing to know. And I would think that there's different um, qualities that are required by the artist. Uh, someone who can do. Um, the Albrecht Durer painting would almost be a, a landscape artist, someone who has that capability, and that's quite a bit different skill from being a botanical artist. Um, there's a, a lot of things that are, are different there. So, um, no, there, I don't think there is any um, any particular movement. But it's a really, it's a, it's a very valid point. And regarding Georgia O'Keeffe. Um, My personal feeling is George O'Keeffe is a flower painter. If if indeed that George O'Keeffe is a is an artist, period, and does paint sometimes paints flowers. But in order to be from again from my my definition, in order to be classified as a botanical artist, the very first the most important thing for me is that there be a scale relationship that is accurate to nature. And pretty much none of her paintings of flowers are. Uh, scale relationship to nature so if if a plant is two inches or if a flower is two inches tall then it's two inches tall it's not two feet tall and um, so that to me is the first uh, critical component and then of course along with the other things the leaves and the stems and other components of the plant botanical art is a it's an interesting area because um, there are people who do very very strict scientific illustrations where um, everything, is, everything is documented and it's shown to scale, and there, then there's, the edges are a little bit um, wavy. You can have some things that vary from that, but there are certain requirements that, um, th- that the art form has. Yes? I would call her totally amazing. The question is about Mary Delaney, and I don't know how many of—I've forgotten the name of that book. Um, what was the name of the book that had her work in it? Anybody know? Yes, the, pa- pa- the paper, Paper Garden was. Yes. Yeah. Um, so Mary Delaney uh, was. Um, give me a rough help on the dates here. A uh, big pardon. <laughs> 1780s, so at the end of it was William, uh, no George. It was it was George and Charlotte, weren't they? Um, got to remember that with the current little group that's there now. Um, so I think Charlotte was the um, uh, was her her patron or her maybe her friend or something. So Mary Delaney, in, in advanced years, I think she was 70 years of age when she she started in this. She decided, um, and I think she'd lost her husband. She'd had a first husband who was maybe not such a great guy. And then something else happened. Anyway, she was alone, but she was being cared for by the British Crown, by the by the by the king and the queen. And she got paper, all kinds of different colored paper, and she did these amazing flower images out of paper. She the passion flower that she built is just totally mind and I saw some of her work when I was in London a couple of years ago. And um, I would consider that botanical art because it certainly, size-wise, it relates to the scale. You can identify the, certainly the genus um, and maybe even in some cases the species. But I, all, more than that, to be able to deal with such delicate, fine, almost air-like paper and to be able to create the, the incredible images that she created, I just think it's totally amazing. <laughs> Whatever you want to call it, you would certainly call it amazing. Uh, If you you haven't seen her work, do look it up. Mary Delaney is is her name. Anybody else? I
0: have a question. Sure. What brought you to this passion? How did you become a botanical artist?
1: Well, that's a... Well, (laughs) well, there's a really good question. I guess, um, well, the art part, um, uh, my great-grandfather... Evidently, was an artist, although I didn't ever see any of his work. And he did paint flowers on silk, um, and that's of my great grandfather on my father's side. And I'm, so perhaps there's a little bit, uh, you know, in the genes. But um, when I, li- I lived in Hawaii for ten years, I did my graduate degree there, and then I was fortunate enough to be able to stay on. And I think the abundance of the flora in Hawaii was the first thing that really attracted me to the whole uh, world first of all, of flowers. And I think that's probably how many of us as artists become attracted to this. We are attracted to those gorgeous flowers. The other night, um, our group had a presentation with uh, some acrylic paints, and these were really intense, bright ones. And we were all just crazy over these wonderful, bright, intense colours because normally, you know, flowers really aren't that intense, but they were wonderful, bright colours. So I think that the intensity of the flora of Hawaii perhaps started it and um then um actually my my girlfriend who's sitting in the front row here she and i went to england and took a course 20 years ago maybe (laughs) quite a few years ago from a flower painter at flatford mill which is a john constable country and that was really the first course that i ever took and i just i i guess i just found a, a passion about it and um what, what I have found, as I have continued to go along, though, with the art form, is that it's very meditative, and all of you who do art perhaps have experienced this, and I spoke with one of the staff here the other day who's a musician, and she has experienced this as well, that when you do some creative endeavor that's outside of yourself, So often that can be a meditative experience, and I sure find that it is very meditative. And in fact, more than that, I remember the first day that I decided I was going to draw something, and of course everything is very fleeting, you know, you have to be there at the moment and and capturing it. So I spent roughly six or eight hours in my studio one day, and lo and behold the world didn't fall apart we still had dinner at the end of the day and you know nothing crashed and burned well that was the worst thing that could have ever happened because that just set me on a roll oh i don't have to be you know running around doing all these i can sit at my desk and i can draw so i think that it's um, it's probably been just a very cumulative cumulative thing but Right now, I spend a lot of time with the microscope, and I really enjoy the minutia of the of the world of plants. And um, yeah, it's but it's fascinating. It's totally fascinating. Anybody who hasn't taken botanical art classes, sign up. <laughs> yes. I don't think so. (laughs) I think that they've been grouped according to um, that's the artistic part of it. I don't think that uh, that they are natural necessarily natural companions in nature. I think that they are that is the artistic part of it, for sure. And it is interesting because I was mentioning to one of the staff members today about um, the uh, the plant the the the, um, image that I showed that has the showy lady's slipper and the um, uh, lily. And it's actually, in the original painting, which is right over there, the, um, the, uh, orange, uh, the, the tiger lily is on the left-hand side of the page, and the page that's open in the book, it's on the right-hand side. So in, in all cases, there wasn't necessarily a reverse image that was created in the printing, and I'm sure that was just a function of, you know, the fact that this was uh, happening for the first time and it was a big struggle to get these all done. But I think there's two or three that are like that that are not the reverse image of the original painting. So I'm sure that you all noticed that earlier when you looked at it. (laughs) Anything else? Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to chat with you.
0: Thank you so much, Linda. That was wonderful.